0: Welcome to the Abridged Presidential Histories with Kenny Ryan, episode 23B, an interview on the vanishing of Benjamin Harrison with Charles Hyde. I'm excited to welcome Charles Hyde to the show today. Charles is the president and CEO of the Benjamin Harrison presidential site in Indianapolis, Indiana. As we've talked about in our last couple episodes, Benjamin Harrison did a lot as president. He acquired the country's first overseas possession. He passed our first antitrust bill. He created the National Forest Reserve System. He added six states. I mean, he did a lot. But according to a July 2021 UGov poll, he is tied for the third least known president in U.S. history. Today, Charles is going to make the case for why Benjamin Harrison should be better known and what we should remember him for. Charles, thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Kenny. The first question I have to ask is, when and why did you first take an interest in Benjamin Harrison?
1: Well, for, for my part, um, I'm a native Hoosier. Um, you know, my family roots stretch across the country, um, but I have a background in history. I have a history degree from Hanover College. Um, I spent a year abroad in England um, studying history. Um, and so when, when I came back and was looking to start my professional career, um, I wanted to put um, my, my history degree to practical application. So I, I started working for a living history museum called Conner Prairie, and kind of worked my way up through that organization. Um, realized that there was opportunity to be able to do more, you know, with my interests and skill set, and so um, took a um, I won't say a, a hiatus from history, but um, uh, took a role at a prominent um, 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 institution here in Indiana, uh, Indianapolis Zoo that's uh, especially reputed for its nonprofit management. So it gave me a great opportunity to be able to to better understand nonprofit management. And so, um, you know, during that time, I I continued to to, um, indulge my history interests. And I was on the board of a um, historic preservation organization um, here in Indiana, ended up serving as its board chair for two years. Um, So when the opportunity came um, here at the Benjamin Harrison Presidential Site to lead the organization, I was encouraged to apply, and you know, after a really competitive process, um, found that it was a right match for the organization and for me, and um, I promise I'm getting around to answering your question here. Um, <laughs> what, what, what really intrigued me the most was, as I was better understanding the organization and better understanding the history of Benjamin Harrison, here you had a significant historical figure that was vastly unknown. Um, And so the more deeply I read about Benjamin Harrison, I mean, you know, certainly having a history degree, I'd read about Benjamin Harrison, and it was of interest that he's the only president elected from Indiana. um, So America's Hoosier president. Um, But really looking at the implications of the policies that he set forward and what he set out to accomplish during his administration, um, it was was deeply surprising that he was not better known. Um, So you know, it started to frame things in my own mind about, you know, understanding the greater relevancy of the American presidency as it pertains to Benjamin Harrison or any one of our 45 presidents and 46 administrations. So you start doing the math on this and you think about, you know, since the country's founding there have been about um, like a half billion American citizens and, you know, out of those half billion American citizens uh, just over 12,000 have served in Congress I think we're up to one hundred and fifteen that have served on the Supreme Court Mm -hmm. and forty five individuals that have served as president of the United States. So forty five out of five hundred million out of a half billion people um, became president of the United States. So there's something exceptional about those individuals It might be good. It might be bad. It may be somewhere in between. But forty-five out of a half billion, um, there's something special. There's some reason why their fellow citizens called them to the highest office in the country, and so it, it's incumbent upon us to to better understand those stories and to think about how they might be relevant to the conversations that we're having today. And so I, I think that Benjamin Harrison presents an especially intriguing case with the priorities that he set out as, you know, a uh, you know self-avowed Hoosier from you know, the late 19th century. Mm-hmm. Um, so the fact that he was advancing um, conservation efforts at that time, the fact that he was outspoken in his advocacy for African-American voting rights, um, it just really um, is as interesting as it is perhaps surprising um, or defies conventional understanding of what was happening in that era.
0: And you know, you mentioned it, there's been like 45 presidents, some very well known, like everybody can name, you know, T.R., Lincoln, uh, Washington. But there's many who nobody could name, or or a few people could name, you know, or let alone say anything about them. What do you think makes some presidents memorable, and why are some presidents forgotten?
1: Well, I'm gonna give I'm going give you a flip answer to start, which is um, I've come to the conclusion that behind every uh, good president is a great historian. Yeah. There has, to be, there, there has to be somebody who can share that story that can curate. Um, where they had significant impact and what was a value that they brought to the country or the advancement of um, certain efforts in the development of the country. Um, so I, I think it certainly requires, um, um, you know, just a, a strong um, statement of that story, whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. Uh, because again, there, there are great presidents who are terrible people. Um, <laughs> yeah. That's, that's borne out, born out in history. Yeah. Um, but there are others that, you know, at least fit the, the model of what we at least express we want from our presidents. But our reward to those individuals is, in many cases, oblivion, you know, for, for them to be understated, for them to be focused on outcomes, for them to put ego aside, to really focus on the national interest. Um, that's not what gets you remembered in history books. Um, and so I think a lot of it comes down to, um, you know, the, the presidents themselves, their operational style, whether they had the, I'll say the misfortune, but from his, <laughs> yeah. historical memory's perspective, the fortune of having something um, uh, deeply significant, such as a war happening during their administration. Right. Um, you look at our presidents that got us in and out of wars, and they tend to be the most memorable, for good mm-hmm. or bad. Mm-hmm. Um, so there, there are a lot of factors, I think, that come into play um, in this idea of, um, you know, the way that we can draw from historical memory. Um, but, you know, the presidents themselves and their style certainly contribute to it.
0: Yeah, you make a good point. Poor Benjamin Harrison. He kept us out of war. And so we don't remember. Him. <laughs> well,
1: well and, you know, it's it's a funny thing because I, I don't know that if you were to if you were to find a way to communicate with Benjamin Harrison at this moment, I think he would probably be satisfied not to be remembered all that well. Oh, interesting. Um, I, I don't think that he ever came at it with that intention to, um, to ascend to some kind of grand historical, you know, a pinnacle. Yeah. Um, that, that he really, and you can see this in his policies and you can see this in his politics and why he was described even in his own era as a statesman that he really set aside self and looked for those opportunities to be able to do more for the country. I mean, that's, that, that's the trope you know, for, for every president, especially on their, um, in their eulogies. But I think that's borne out to be true. And you know, with the benefit of 130 years of history that you can see as Benjamin Harrison set forward even when he was wrong in what he did, I think that he set out with good intentions. Mm. And so there's a lot to be understood, especially as we're trying to navigate some very difficult um, political challenges and societal changes right now, Um, at least acting in good faith and trying to make good choices based on sound information Mm -hmm. is all the more important.
0: Yeah. And, you know, uh, given the that his grandfather William Henry Harrison is known for dying a month into office, you'd really be jinxing it to be wanting to known for, be known for anything <laughs> if that's well, in your family history. Yeah, I mean,
1: it's it's interesting because you look at the historic ranking of presidents yeah. and their prominence, and there's not always rhyme and reason to why certain <laughs> right. presidents are rated more highly. I right. Sometimes it comes down to branding. Yeah. Sometimes <laughs> it comes down to historical accident. Um, you know, if you're assassinated. Um, yeah. Certainly, It does, you know, put you more in the public eye. Yep. Um, and it's just, it's, it's a fascinating study to look at those 45 individuals and understand, um, you know, if you want to get something done, if you demand the credit, you may not get what you want. Um, <laughs> yeah. But what, what are you trying to accomplish? So
0: philosophical question for you. Why is it important to remember stories from history? What do we get from it? Wanting to learn these stories?
1: You know, we, we've asked ourselves that very question and certainly representing a lesser known president, um, I think it's all the more incumbent upon us to be thoughtful about those things. Um, so we started a program called Future Presidents of America, which is a youth leadership camp for young adults, ages 12 to 16, um, to give them the opportunity to draw from the stories of um, the commander in chief, you know, the executive. And with having these 45 very distinct individuals to be able to draw from, um, it really gives you an opportunity to think about the different pathways to influence and power, um, whatever that might consist of. Um, And so to be able to draw from these stories, this deep historical well, I think at least has the potential to allow us to avoid making the same mistakes over and over again. you know, we, we certainly seem to always find a way to repeat the mistakes of the past, but perhaps we, we can avoid the worst of those excesses. I mean, certainly we've seen over the past couple of years with the pandemic um, that all of a sudden all eyes turn to 1918 um, and that pandemic and trying to understand what happened at that time and how we were able to get through that moment in time and you know, relevant in a way that um, had been broadly ignored for many years in spite of you know, m- many, I think is Cassandra, the, the famous uh, figure from, from mythology who was um, um, you know, called alarm but was ignored um, and, until it was too late. Um, so I think that, that we're, as a history person myself, I will say that that's something that I'm, I always try to be mindful of, you know, what, what lessons haven't we yet learned from the past that we should be drawing from? And there, there's a lot to learn, I think, in Benjamin Harrison's story that, that speaks to um, that that crisis in public confidence that we have right now.
0: You know, I'd love to start diving into some of the specific aspects of Harrison's story and, and what you think we should be taking away from him. Um, I'd love to start with, you know, when we think of presidents who are, say, antitrust, pro-conservation, internationalist, we think of Teddy Roosevelt, you know, a guy who came two presidents later, or a few presidents later, should we be thinking of Benjamin Harrison instead? Was, was he a forbearer of that? Was he paving
1: a way? So, you know, harking back to our Future Presidents of America program, and that that's part of what shaped that initiative for us. Um, so it's interesting that two future presidents were hired into Benjamin Harrison's administration. So Harrison gave uh, first federal jobs to Taft and to Theodore Roosevelt. Yeah, Um, so it's interesting when you start thinking about that, um, kind of that continuity. So you had Benjamin Harrison lose in 1892 to Cleveland. Um, Cleveland didn't run again in 1896. Um, but you had McKinley and, um, Harrison actually was offered the opportunity to run in 1896 and refused it. Mm. Um, because at that point, the stigma of having lost an election as a president you know, it didn't preclude you from being able to come back because Cleveland had kind of broken that. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So um, Harrison could have run again in 1896 and decided that he'd had enough, that he'd done what he could do to be helpful. And um, so, you know, he had other things that he was doing at that point in his life. <laughs> yeah. um, so there is some wisdom there. But it's interesting, of course, then um, McKinley and then um, uh, Benjamin Harrison died in 19- March of 1901. Um, at that point, um, McKinley had been reelected and um, Theodore Roosevelt was his vice president. Um, so I don't think there was any thought at that time that <laughs> Roosevelt would ascend to the presidency. In fact, um, even reading some of the contemporary um, reports on Roosevelt, there's a lot of um, nervousness about his general temperament. Yeah. Um, but of course, then Roosevelt ascended to the presidency after McKinley's assassination. So it's, it's so interesting to be able to, to dive deep in these stories and to really um, draw from them. In fact, you, know, you think about you know, Roosevelt and how he ended up, at least in historical memory, attaching to those, those ideas, you know, if, if you're vice president and all of a sudden you know, the president is murdered and you think, oh goodness, you know, I've got ideas of my own but I, I need a roadmap here to think through how I'm gonna be able to execute what I wanna accomplish. It's not surprising that you would hearken back to administrations that you had served in, right thinking yeah. back to what those priorities would be, so there's a really interesting story um, um, that speaks to this, and I think it's it's a great lesson in presidential leadership and leadership style. so you, you think about Roosevelt serving in Harrison's administration, and if you watch the Roosevelt series uh, by Ken Burns, yeah. Um, there's a scurrilous quote that Roosevelt had to say about Harrison being the psalm-singing old Indianapolis politician. <laughs> and it's, I mean, this is one of these typical Theodore Roosevelt disparagements. So I, I don't think that anyone would have taken it too personally, right. uh, knowing mm-hmm. Roosevelt. But it's interesting. So Harrison had hired Roosevelt into his administration for civil service reform. And um, Roosevelt being Roosevelt um, got pretty aggressive about it in pursuing even some of Harrison's close associates and friends. And um, those associates and friends called for relief from Harrison asking him to fire Roosevelt and Harrison just refused. Ah. Um, so I think you know, it speaks certainly to um, Harrison's integrity and probity and, and such things. Yeah. Um, but you know, clearly Roosevelt was a bit of a nuisance to him, just in terms of writing um, roughshod over the um, things where he maybe could have been a little more delicate. So you, you get additional insight into all of this. Um, you fast forward a few years when Roosevelt was then governor of New York. So the former then former president, Benjamin Harrison, was invited to introduce Governor Roosevelt at this national conference. And so Harrison takes the stage and he says, well, I had an opportunity to speak with Governor Roosevelt uh, before you know, the program started and he asked my opinion upon a subject. And when I shared my, my opinion, he said, well, that's the very thing I would have done anyway. And so Harrison went on and he said, I'm glad to have arrived at the conclusion to which he had already come. <laughs> so, you know, like kind of needling him in a way that only a former boss could, could um, you know, needle a former employee. But he, he went on to say, he said, but I want you to understand that there, I see no real differences between myself and Roosevelt, except that Theodore Roosevelt thought that he could right all the wrongs of the world between sunrise and sunset. And I thought that it took a little longer so as not to fracture things too much. So I think that, that that encapsulates their presidential leadership styles like in a really profound way. Yeah, You think about Roosevelt and you know how often he probably worked against his own interests by trying to right all the wrongs of the world between sunrise and sunset. And in his incessant demand for attention. Yeah. I mean, his 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 own daughter was probably most damning of him, and I I don't think I'm going to get this whole quote right, but said something uh, about Theodore Roosevelt and that so Alice Roosevelt said that um, Theodore wanted to be the corpse at every funeral, the bride at yeah. every wedding, and the baby at every christening.
0: Yeah, something you know, like that. Like, that quote sounds familiar. Yeah.
1: <laughs> it's like burn, ouch, you know. <laughs> but you know, for for Benjamin Harrison. I don't, I don't really think that he approached the presidency in that way, that he, he sought the lower profile, that even as senator from Indiana in the early 1880s, he was advancing a lot of these, this legislative work that he finally had the, um, the administrative power to accomplish then as president. So you know, unexpectedly, he was advocating for um, protection of the Grand Canyon in the early 1880s and had legislation defeated twice that would have protected the Grand Canyon. Um, so, you know, what's this president or this, this senator from Indiana doing trying to protect the Grand Canyon? You know, it starts prompting some really intriguing questions about um, kind of his, his larger view of the world and, and the good that he saw that he could do for the country.
0: I feel like a big part of Harrison's legacy is that despite all the legislation he succeeded in passing, he failed to pass a civil rights bill, something that will basically sit dormant for like 50 years until Truman kind of starts to get the ball rolling again with the armed forces. What should we remember from this fight that Harrison did not win?
1: You know, it's, it's fascinating. And uh, Dr. George Sinkler um, has written a phenomenal, um, probably 20, 30 page piece on Benjamin Harrison and the question of race. And so he delves into this, this subject much more deeply. And um, it's, it's a fascinating read. I would encourage any of your listeners to get a chance. Um, it's accessible online, I think, through um, uh, Indiana University's uh, Magazine of History. Um, you can find it through there. But um, uh, Dr. Sinclair, who's African-American historian, um, writing actually in a very, another very contentious time. So he wrote this article in the late 1960s. Really gives credit to Benjamin Harrison for how outspoken he was um, in an era that that certainly didn't expect or demanded of him. So in in many instances, you know, we look at our public figures, and when they have a public stance, we we try to discern why they hold that stance, you know, what's in it for them. And by all appearances with Harrison, that he was really pursuing this because he saw it as the right thing to be doing and felt like we had an obligation as a country to our African-American citizens um, to, to uphold the rights of citizenship. Um, and not something that should be controversial, but in um, that era was deeply so, and actually maybe fractured things too much in the South, um, as we saw in that election of 1890 that um, and in many ways that bill that he pushed forward that really came within a vote of you know, perhaps advancing civil right protections by you know, almost 60 years, um, just by the smallest of fractions did not get passed. And so Harrison, I think, approached that, that legislation earnestly, it was called the Lodge Bill. Um, the Southerners um, that opposed it called it the Force Bill. And again, it would have protected and it would have created a mechanism for federal enforcement of voting rights for all citizens, um, including African-Americans, but especially then for African-Americans. And that's, that's where the South ended up feeling so threatened, um, where suppression of um, the um, African-American electorate was actively taking place at the time.
0: Now, is there any lesson you think that when you look back at it, that if they maybe taken a slightly different approach, it would have passed? Certainly, you always see through history a party that's in power will have a really big piece of legislation it really wants to pass, and sometimes they succeed, sometimes they fail. You know, is there anything to learn from that failure that future people should keep in mind?
1: You know, I think it's always it's always that that push and pull, that give and take. That that happens within the legislative process. Um, so you know, from the vantage of you know 100 and what, 130 years having passed, yeah. you think about you know what more might have Harrison been able to do to ensure that legislation had passed, or had also been able to pass. You know, he was actively also encouraging um, education protections for African American students to ensure that they were fully funded um, to allow for their education. Also, seeing suppression happening in the South, kind of that resurgence. Um, he also sought to have anti-lynching legislation passed that did not pass, and actually still has not passed at a federal level. Um, so, you know, it's it's a. I think it, it requires soul searching of all of us and trying to understand what our priorities are, and for each generation to think about um, what we can do, what gift we can give to the future. To resolve long-standing um, contentious um, kind Absolutely. of public questions. Yeah. Uh,
0: when I talk to other historians about Benjamin Harrison and maybe he comes up in conversation, they seem to always want to bring up his one real black eye and that was Native American affairs. You know, 300 Lakota were massacred by the U.S. Army at Wounded Knee while he was president and he just seemed to kind of ignore it. So I guess Firstly, why, why did he not speak out there?
1: You know, it's, it's something that we're trying to better understand as we, as we look at this history um, and we, you know, we're grappling with, with all questions. It's, it's like any presidency um, there's good, there's bad, there's somewhere in between. Um, you know, it's, it's an area that we really need to be doing more research on and to better understand. Um, You know, you can look into that record and you can see that Harrison was very angry um, with the military officers um, and with that uh, massacre, Um, with his initial sharp questioning following the massacre that he'd been very clear in his instructions, um, that was deeply disappointed that that had come to military action, um, ordered an inquiry, Um, but from there, it's, it's really hard to tease out like what more happened in consequence. Um, and actually, it's, it's interesting with um, the full digitization of Harrison's papers um, online. Um, it gives an opportunity, I think, to follow that timeline and to, to better understand how those inquiries took place, what Harrison's response was. Um, and I, I think it's fraud. Um, you know, it probably is as much um, a reflection on, you know, 19th century presidency and how it interacted with Native peoples. Um, and it's, it's, it's an unfortunate story, um, you know, almost start to finish that, that justice has not been done. Um, so I, I, think, I think it's one of the opportunities for us as an organization um, to delve more deeply into that story, um, actually, in the coming year. Uh, we'll be doing a special exhibit on um, um, civil rights, um, African-American civil rights advocates in the Harrison era and delving more deeply into that story. Yeah. Um, and then the future years we we also plan to delve into other areas, you know, looking at uh, immigration, looking at um, relations with Native peoples. Um, but in all of this, you know, looking back to primary sources, looking back to the historical record um, is going to be all the more important. Because I think, I think that's probably one of those other areas, whether it's Benjamin Harrison or looking at other presidencies, you have to scrape off the veneer of historical memory. You know, it's, it's one of those things where, um, you know, when for people that do remember Benjamin Harrison, um, the, the main things that, that come to mind for most people are that he's not his grandfather who died a month into office. So yeah. just reminding them that they you know, that they are two different people, that Harrison served a full four years. Yep. Um, for some reason, it's gain, gained great currency on the internet that Benjamin Harrison was afraid of electricity. Um, <laughs> which, which is kind of puzzling. Yeah. But I mean, like from kids' books to like full academic histories, I, I, I don't understand it. And I think I've actually traced it to its point of origin. Um, and so if you go back to the primary sources, there's a story the Harrisons actually converted the White House to electricity. And it was Caroline Harrison, his wife, that had proposed a major expansion of the White House, which con- Congress rejected. Um, but they did allocate $30,000 because they acknowledged that the White House was in um, significant disrepair.
0: Which is a common theme in American
1: history. <laughs> I know. Car- Caroline Harrison you know, delved into this with great gusto. And yeah. I mean, they even had to hire ferrets to kill all the rats that were living in the White House at the time. So you had to, at one one hand, you've got civil service reform on, happening under uh, Theodore Roosevelt and then you've got Caroline Harrison having to hire ferrets to kill all the rats in the White House. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure somebody more literate than myself could make a, a larger story. I, know, I wanna know like, okay, what did they hire to get the ferrets? You know, what's that's the- right, first, That's right, that's what classes, I always was about. Right? <laughs> how you get rid of ferrets. Um, So, so in all of this, they did um, add electricity to the White House. That's how you kill the ferrets. No, no, in fact, I mean, that's, that's just as a quick aside, you know, um, there was a podcast going back a few years ago now um, with the World Wildlife Fund where they were talking about Benjamin Harrison's conservation legacy. Yeah. it's actually during his administration that you had the first um, protection for an individual species. Oh, with the fur bearing seal, um, with that dispute, um, um, with the UK, nice. yeah. So, I mean, there, there are all these interesting tidbits that we, we could delve down a rabbit hole, yeah. But you know, it's interesting just following that thread again with the electricity. <laughs> yes. you know, the Harrisons had electricity added to the White House, it was a new technology. Um, I'm guessing presidents now don't go around turning on and off light switches a lot in the White House, um, so that the person that I think, started the story with with the Harrisons not wanting to turn on and off the lights themselves was Ike Hoover. So Ike Hoover was the electrician in the White House who installed the electricity and then went on to have like a 30, 40-year career working for other presidents and other roles within the White House. So he wrote remembrances of his time with different presidents. And and, in this account, he says, the Harrisons um, did not like turning on and off the lights, switches for fear of being shocked. So that somehow has morphed into Benjamin Harrison was afraid of electricity, which we know is untrue because he came back to Indianapolis and he had electricity installed in his own house. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, as, as such things go, historical memory is going to remember what it wants even um, at the expense of truth. So it's important to, to be discerning in all of this and to go back to primary sources, and I mean, that's, that's my, my initial point here is that it's all the more important with lesser known presidents like Benjamin Harrison to, to go back to the original source and to make sure that we haven't made some historical assumptions that aren't quite true. Are there any moments
0: outside of Benjamin Harrison's presidency that come to mind as things that really should be told to understand who this guy was?
1: Well, you know, it's interesting and it's, it's one of those things where You know, you mentioned earlier. You know, kind of bringing up the uncomfortable facts or those uncomfortable stories. You know, those two hold a lot of lessons to be learned. So I think that that's important to to be mindful of. Um, One of those, one of those things that um, you know, we think about Benjamin Harrison. His political opponents characterized him as the human iceberg. And if you look at a lot of these contemporary um, histories that just kind of make cursory passes at the lesser-known presidents. And then spend you know chapters on you know Lincoln or Theodore Roosevelt. Um, I, I think there's a lot of shoddy history that, that's happening in, in that vein. Yeah. And you know one one of those areas you know talking about Benjamin Harrison as the human iceberg. Um, yes, it was something that he was known for. But if you look at the actual stories that recount relations with Benjamin Harrison. I think that as centennial president, so elected 100 years after George Washington, mm-hmm. um, that he sought to emulate some of the austerity of Washington. Mm-hmm. Um, and what was admired in Washington um, as this kind of, you know, natural nobility um, was seen as aloof or standoffish with Benjamin Harrison, mm-hmm. um, and maybe in part a matter of stature. So I think that uh, Washington was what, 6'2", six 6'4"? Six yeah, yeah, he was you know, huge, especially for- a Big guy, time, yeah. <laughs> whereas Benjamin Harrison was, what I would say would be our 44th tallest president. <laughs> um, so you do the math and yeah, second shortest of, of our American presidents. So, you know, he yeah. had a, um, a deeply respected war record. He had volunteered as a um, soldier in the American Civil War. He had led his troops from the front. He was uh, well acknowledged for physical bravery in battle. Um, he even served as battlefield surgeon for his troops after a battle when he separated from, from the surgical unit. Um, so he 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 was credible, you know, both professionally, you know, as a nationally renowned lawyer, um, but then also for his commitment to, um, to the country with his service in the Union cause. Um, and saw that very much as a, a battle to abolish slavery, um, then, in that role. But, you know, you think about that, that austerity and how it can read wrong, <laughs> right? You know, what, what are the optics of these things? Um, and and how it, how it holds against historical memory. So. You know, looking outside the presidency, I, I would highlight a few different items. Um, one would be the, the things that we take for granted in terms of how we conceive of ourselves as Americans. Hmm. So if you were to ask people, you know, what are those things that you feel like really defines um, like our public expressions of being American citizens? And I think most people would say, you know, flying the American flag and maybe seeing the Pledge of Allegiance. And again, historical memory has not recalled Harrison's connection to both of those, those items. So it's well-documented you know, as centennial president, Harrison made a public proclamation um, that after that centennial celebration, after that grand entry into New York City and that recreation of Washington's inaugural um, that he did at the behest you know, of his national committee celebrations and everything else, he saw all the flags flying and at that time, it was really seen more as an emblem of war. And so seeing all of those flags out in the public spaces, he asked that after the celebrations were completed, not to put them away, but to fly them in front of schools and in front of public buildings. And so that tradition really harkens back to Harrison. And again, what he conceived of as being an American citizen. You know, he, he was he was in an era of intense, intense um, like, fractious relationships especially with the american south and how much people across the country perhaps identified more with their state i mean that was maybe what you know the the ship of state foundered on in the civil war was people identified more closely with their state identities than they did with their national identities so i think that you can see that with harrison's ten thousand mile trip to unify um, 1891 um, that he was really trying to get people to elevate their sites as Seeing themselves as Americans first, you know, certainly celebrating their state identities, but as Americans first. Yeah. Um, and framing that out, he said, an American citizen could not be a good citizen who did not have a hope in his heart. And so, you know, to take that one further, and he also called upon um, the Pledge of Allegiance to be used in all schools nationally. Mm. So both both of those legacy items harken back to Benjamin Harrison. So certainly, they happened during his presidency but they've had a life and they've taken on a life well beyond his presidency. And again, I think in many ways, we find ourselves surrounded with the implications of Benjamin Harrison's leadership um, in our day-to-day lives in ways that we just that just don't come to mind because we just take them for granted as, well, this is the way it's been. This is the way it would be. Yeah. And in many other countries, you know, if you travel abroad, you find that that's just not the case. Right. This is something <laughs> that is uniquely American. Yeah, and in large part harkens back to to Harrison's um, vision for for the country.
0: Yeah, thank you for those two stories. I love examples of stories of things that, as you say, we just take for granted. But you realize, like, oh no, this happened because this person who I've totally forgotten ever existed—they made it happen. That's really cool.
1: Well, and and two other things, you know, just outside the presidency. Um, yeah. You know, they're they're. Being able to draw from stories, as you note, is important, just giving yeah. that deeper context. And it allows you to proof test other um, other characteration characterizations of individuals. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I love the story. And this is actually in The New York Times from the mid-1890s of ex-president plays policeman was The uh, New York Times headline. Okay. So apparently the, the story that goes with it is that um, Benjamin Harrison had returned to Indianapolis by that time. Um, and um, he was walking through the, the neighborhood where the Benjamin Harrison presidential site is today, the Old North Side, and a woman runs up to him and says, those men, and points out a couple of guys kind of skulking away, she said, those men stole my purse. So as president of the United States, former president of the United States, um, what are you going to do? Well, you know, Harrison felt uh, obligated to chase the men down. So Harrison at that time, you know, in his 60s, Um, takes off on foot after these two guys, realizes that they're clearly quicker than he is. So he commandeers a horse cart, chases them down in the horse cart, leaps off and tackles one of the guys and keeps him pinned until the police can arrive. The other guy escaped. Um, But yeah, thinking about that, it's like, okay, so this is a different person maybe than the way that, that history has remembered him. You know, kind of that dichotomy between you know, Benjamin Harrison, was he afraid of electricity? Right. <laughs> My guess as a Civil War veteran, um, you know, battle tested and chasing down um, purse thieves um, in public, the guy probably was not afraid of electricity. Yeah,
0: I've, I've never seen an iceberg um, chase down a criminal. So,
1: <laughs> well, and I, actually it's, it's not an isolated case either. So even during Harrison's presidency, um, there's a great story. And actually you can find this on the White House Historical Association's website of there being a dinner party at the White House and Harrison hearing a commotion downstairs. And, you know, this is in the era of no secret service. So the presidents really had no protections. And you think about that, you know, more than a century for presidents with really with no protections. Um, So Harrison, you know, comes downstairs and um, sees two off-duty police officers grappling with a man um, who appears to be profoundly um, disturbed in some way. Later, turns out that he was rip-roaring drunk, um, but he's um, laying into these police officers saying, tell me where the president, pre- president is. I'm, I'm going to kill him. And so apparently knocks out the, this, um, this raging drunk, knocks out one of the um, off-duty police officers, and Harrison calls to the other officer. He says, what can I do to help? And he's like, help me restrain him. So there, there are two accounts of what happened next, um, both of which I think are, are all the more intriguing. Um, so he either went directly to the curtains and pulled down the curtain cords and then t- tied the guy up hand and foot, mm-hmm. restraining him, or rushed to the guy, cold cocked him, and then tied him up. <laughs> but go, go to the White House Historical Association. You'll find this story. Yeah, um, But it's just, it's, alarming and surprising to think about these things happening in the 19th century to our presidents, and that this is at least how Benjamin Harrison responded in such a dire situation. Again, I think it speaks to, um, to who he was and, and his more action-oriented nature um, than you know, some his- histories may portray.
0: All right. So if, if someone walks up to you and they're like, I've never heard of Benjamin Harrison, tell me one story about Benjamin Harrison. What's the one story you tell that is revealing of his character?
1: You know, I think it's interesting. Um, I've shared some, some of my favorite stories. There yeah, been so many great stories. It's been fantastic. <laughs> yeah. So um, I'm really intrigued. You know, he, he conducted a front porch campaign from here in Indianapolis. Yeah. So um, that election of 1888, you know, the news came across the wire, literally across the wire, um, you know, in that era, you know, we, we forget there was instantaneous communication in 1888. But they had telegraph and they had telephone. So when that news came across um, from Chicago and that, that convention that Harrison had received the nomination, the city swelled up in celebration. So um, by that night, um, over 10% of the pop- city's population had swelled around Benjamin Harrison's front door. So you had like 8,000 people you know, calling for Harrison to give speeches. Hmm. Um, so we, we actually have a special exhibit right now called The Night Indianapolis Roared. It looks more deeply. And, and that one day of June 25th, 1888, we have contemporary photos of that era. And it's, it's really fascinating because it's such a diverse crowd um, in terms of um, like race than you might imagine. And, you know, people of all ages, barefoot boys, you know, it's just, it's really fascinating to, to get that snapshot of that era. But I think it's all the more interesting when you start looking at what that front porch campaign looked like. Um, so one of the things that's really striking to me, um, as you look at that front porch campaign, you know delegations coming from across the country um, to Harrison rather than Harrison having to travel out across the country. And so, um, you know, with those delegations coming to Harrison, there was a group of 300 um, African American men who called themselves the Harrison Club, um, who came to Harrison's front door and wanted to congratulate him on um, receiving the nomination. And so he welcomed, he greeted them, and he gave extemporaneous remarks to them. I mean, that's one of the fascinating things about Harrison was that um, he was, I think, such, an, um, such a thoughtful person and had such a like sure sense of self and of center that I think that artic- articulating these like loftier thoughts came more easily to him than, than it did for many others. Um, but in his response to these 300 African American men, um, he shared the story of growing up on the Ohio River. So, remembering at that time, you know, south of the Ohio you had slave states, and north of the Ohio you had yeah. free states. Right. Um, and you add to that. Complex mix, you know. His great grandfather was Benjamin Harrison V, who was a signer of the Declaration of Independence, a governor of Virginia, and a slaveholder. You have his grandfather, who has a very complex legacy of his own, certainly with um, Native um, American relations, um, you know, indentured servitude versus slavery in the um, Indiana Territory, um, and so you know, for Harrison to kind of come out of that that family and to be fiercely staunchly anti-slavery. Um, something formative had to have happened. Something must have like made Benjamin Harrison um, appreciate this, this special situation, why, why we needed to ensure the freedom of African-American citizens and respect those rights. So Harrison is, is giving these remarks and sharing something deeply personal to him. And he, he says, um, I remember as a small boy being on the Ohio River and um, coming across a fugitive slave, um, like in the Canebrake. And we startled each other, you know, upon discovery. Um, but he said, I kept his secret. And so you, you think about that and, you know, what it means for, you know, a very prominent man, you know, at that point. Um, would have been in his late 50s, um, you know, renowned lawyer um, with local, regional, national standing, um, sharing this deeply um, personal experience of having come across a fugitive slave, and literally in that moment, breaking the law himself.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yes. So you, you look at, at Harrison, if there's one thing that defied or defined his legacy, I think it's justice through law. But in that moment of lawlessness, as a child, you know, protecting that fugitive slave secret, um, I, I think it was something that Benjamin Harrison had thought deeply about, and certainly informed um, many of his later actions.
0: Yeah, certainly, certainly. What is Benjamin Harrison's lasting legacy?
1: You know, I think I think a lot of it harkens back to this idea of what it means to be an American citizen. Um, that the crucible of war had been so profound for him and his appreciation for what this country was and could be, um, you know, he certainly saw opportunity um, for the country to grow and expand and to draw responsibly from its natural resources. And so I think that he wanted to ensure in all of this that that we did certainly... Um, pursue that larger aim with justice in mind. Um, there, there are an array of really insightful quotes um, from Benjamin Harrison, where he speaks to this. I'm um, probably one of the most quoted um, is, um, you know, I pity the man that wants a coat so cheap that the man or woman who makes it starves in the process. Um, just this idea of, um, Equality being the golden thread that runs through all of our civil institutions. This is another way that he's articulated that. But I I think it it speaks to the intentionality, certainly, of his legislative efforts. Um, I think with the integrity that he sought to administer his administration um, and the groundwork that he was at least seeking to lay forward for the continued growth and prosperity of the country.
0: What lessons in leadership do you think we can learn from Benjamin Harrison?
1: Well, I think a lot of it comes down to style. Um, So, you know, fairly or not, there's, you know, maybe that dichotomy, you know, hearkening back to Theodore Roosevelt of kind of the New York style, you know, brash and bold and demanding attention um, versus what you might think of as more of a Midwestern, certainly Um, being from Indiana myself, I think it was very like Hoosier style of very low key, never really seeking attention. Um, you know, I think Harrison um, sought to do the right things at the right time in the right way for the right reasons, um, and that doesn't get you very far in terms of um, like public legacy. So, <laughs> so I mean, there, there's a great quote from Benjamin Harrison where, um, at the centennial celebrations, he calls attention to that. You know, he's like, you know, we're coming into the presence of of Washington. You know, there's essentially, if there's one lesson that we learn from him, is that those that wish to be remembered more than a century. Can't do things for their own personal gain, but it has to be for the larger public good. Mm -hmm. So I think that if we were to look at this, you know, Harrison probably had like a very slow burn type of leadership style, Mm -hmm. that he was trying to do things foundationally to set up long term successes rather than just immediate gains that would be short lived. Mm -hmm. And I think that you can certainly see that with essentially his creation of the National Forest System with the Forest Reserve Act, its passage um, the antitrust legislation. I mean, these things didn't happen accidentally. And this is where, you know, we would certainly invite, uh, more interest and deeper research from historians. Um, you know, Harrison, for example, set up, um, what I believe is still a unique legal structure alongside, um, then also prominent citizen of Indianapolis, um, Colonel Eli Lilly, um, a public trust, um, with the, um, with a water company and that was at a time when you had all of these uh private trusts that were coming along and gobbling up all of these public resources Mm -hmm. and so harrison helped set up this really unique legal structure that prevented that from ever happening and that legal entity still exists today because of the way that harrison helped structure it wow and so understanding that there is that intentionality even before his administration, and then to go forward into his administration and to seek to put forward the groundwork that would be necessary for anti-legis- or antitrust legislation to be enacted on a national level. Um, again, you, you can see kind of that arc of history starting to form. That's awesome.
0: This has been a really fun conversation. If you'd like to hear more from Charles, please check out the Benjamin Harrison presidential site in Indianapolis, Indiana. You can also find them online at presidentbenjaminharrison.org. Thank you so much for your time, Charles.
1: Hey, thank you so much, Kenny.
0: Thank you for listening to today's episode of Abridged Presidential Histories. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, tell your friends about the show, and leave a five-star review on your podcast listening platform of choice. It's always so good to hear from you. You can also follow the show on Facebook at Abridged Presidential Histories or on Twitter at APH Podcast. If you'd like to support the show, you can look it up on Patreon or go directly to www.patreon.com slash abridgedpresidentialhistories. This helps me buy books and pay to host the show. And thank you so much to everyone who has contributed so far. The music in today's podcast is a public domain recording of the United States Army Old Guard Fife and Drum Corps. In our next episode, we'll jump back to Grover Cleveland for part two, the second term. This, this guy who had a first term broken up by Harrison, now he's back in office. We'll look at what was Cleveland doing in these years out of office and what did he do back in the White House. That's next time on Abridged Presidential Histories.